the idea of Stonehenge is an ancient idea, but it's in an even more ancient place, a landscape that I think is very inspiring and conducive to contemplation. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knute Berger. In case you wondered, Mossback's Northwest is a fascinating look at the history of the most interesting place on Earth. And today we're going to talk about Druid on the Columbia, specifically the Stonehenge replica that sits right above the Columbia River near Goldendale, Washington. Perhaps you've heard about it, perhaps you've not, but it is really one of the most remarkable structures of Washington State. If you haven't seen the video, take a moment, stop right now, and go to the show notes or to the show page on crosscut.com and check it out, and then we'll see you back here later. The Columbia River has been flowing for over a million years. It has seen tumultuous times, lava flows and scouring Ice Age floods. It has fed the first people since time immemorial. It has been a pathway for explorers and an artery for trade. It has been dammed for electricity and its waters have cooled the reactors of the atomic age. It has served as a scenic backdrop for many wonders, like Stonehenge? Yep. Canute, I'm struck by the fact that many people know that there is a Stonehenge replica in Washington. It sits above the Columbia River near Goldendale, but so many people don't know about it. And I have not been there in all my years in Washington, but I have this feeling that it's the kind of thing that once you go there, you are so flabbergasted at it, the setting and the story behind it that you have to ask yourself, why have I not been here before? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's not exactly a remote area, <laughs> but it's a very scenic area. And it is an area that uh, a lot of people um, don't drive through. And the Stonehenge monument there has become a kind of uh, roadside attraction for people. Um, you know, if you drive along and you see it or if you've heard about it and you visit it, <clears throat> it's really kind of striking it just because of its eccentricity. What? Why did you decide to do this particular segment and subject? Well, one reason is uh, I have been there. I, You know, I have thought, you know, this is really weird and interesting. Um, and But I, I was getting emails from people over the last couple of years. Um, people wanted to know if that, if the model worked, <laughs> you know, is it is it a clock uh, in, in the sense that uh, the original Stonehenge appears to be? And then I got an email not too long ago where somebody said, what is the castle on the Columbia? And they had heard this term, but they'd never heard. Well, the thing is, 
to kind of understand the Stonehenge, you have to understand the man behind the whole landscape setting there. And that was Sam Hill. That's right. It was a man named Sam Hill. And, you know, that expression, what in Sam Hill? When people hear that name, they think, you know, that he uh, was about him and it wasn't. But he did a lot of stuff that might cause one to say, what in Sam Hill is that? Who was Sam Hill? So Sam Hill was a uh, very successful businessman and lawyer who worked uh, for the railroads. And he worked for the Great Northern Railroad. And the boss of that railroad he was his father-in-law, James J. Hill, also known as the Empire Builder. But James, he was not related to James J. Hill. They weren't related. They just had the same but name. They, but but Sam Hill married James J. Hill's daughter, Mary. <laughs> so uh, he was a very successful lawyer for the railroad and for related businesses. Um, and uh, they did, you know, very well. Uh, and uh, but eventually he had some kind of falling out with his father-in-law and they agreed to kind of part company. He left uh, working on the railroad, went out on his own. So in the early 20th century, he moved to Seattle. He built a mansion here. He, um, he got into coal gas. He had a Seattle Gas and Electric Company, um, which was fairly successful and eventually sold that business. Um, you know, he built a mansion on Capitol Hill. His wife did not like Seattle, and she eventually moved back to the Midwest, where she spent most of her life. Um, they spent their most of their marriage was, you know, spent apart. What drew Sam Hill down to Goldendale, which seems a hike from his home in Seattle, his luxurious life in Seattle? Yeah, I think Hill uh, thought the Columbia Gorge was a really beautiful place. Um, he was very involved early on in promoting the building of roads. And one of the roads that was built as a result of his pushing was on the Oregon side of the Columbia River through the gorge. That highway was something that resulted from Sam Hill's advocacy. On the Washington side, he was really intrigued with the sort of fertility of that landscape. Um, there were farms there. Um, he was impressed with the range of produce that could be produced. It was a wonderful climate. And he had this fantasy, having been raised a Quaker, of creating a kind of Quaker community there. And uh, so this became very much kind of a part of his vision for, for the area, that there would be <laughs> road access to this rich agricultural area, and uh, that in a sense he could be sort of the, the baron of this uh, particular uh, part of Washington. The original Stonehenge is a Neolithic circular monument of upright stones on Salisbury Plain in what is now England. Some believe it was a sacred place of the Druids, pagan priests first described by Roman conquerors. It is said to have astronomical significance, aligned for the winter and summer solstice. It was built in stages starting about 5,000 years ago. 
but it still evokes a kind of mystical sense. In the modern world, it has inspired imaginations and imitators all over, many with a whimsical purpose, like Carhenge in Nebraska, a full-size Stonehenge made of junked cars. So there's a big mansion there, and then there's Stonehenge. Which came first? So the idea for the mansion, I think, came first, which was um, he wanted to build, and this is this is what's referred to by some people as a castle, because you're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, this, you know, uh, broad landscape, and suddenly there's this, you know, Flemish <laughs> um, uh, mansion, is you know what you'd call it, or or villa, um, sitting above the river in this dramatic location, and uh, yeah, Hill built it. He intended it to be a residence, but quickly um, decided that it, what he would never live there, and it's become an art museum, which it is today, and it was a place where he could play with some of his ideas. So. You know, he was a promoter of roads. Uh, the mansion was built of steel-reinforced concrete, and it has ramps on either side of the mansion so that people could drive cars right up into the mansion, into the great hall. The guests would step out, then the cars would go down the other side, and there was some underground parking. Uh, so he was... He was sort of thinking ahead. The first drive-through. Exactly. And uh, um, he, he also built a, um, a road that would showcase um, macadamizing, which was a particular type of paving. And there's, part of that road is still there. It's about 10 mile long sort of test road. So he was really putting a lot of ambition into this property in terms of this, this mansion. He named it Mary Hill either after his wife or daughter. I've heard both. Um, and uh, so the museum is there. Well, he traveled widely. He befriended European royalty. Queen Marie of Romania, for example, um, she visited Mary Hill. Um, and he traveled overseas during World War I. And having been raised a Quaker, he was really appalled at the carnage that he was seeing. And um, so he was determined to do something about that. And when the, as the war progressed and Americans began fighting and dying in the war, he decided he would build a monument, a memorial to the war dead. The war dead from that area of Klickitat County where Mary Hill is. And he was inspired because he had visited England and he'd seen the original Stonehenge and the sort of mysticism around the site. And it was believed at that time that Stonehenge was a place where the Druids would sacrifice people to the war gods. And he thought, well, this will be a fitting memorial because today in the modern world, we're still sacrificing young people to the war gods so I'm going to build this memorial. So they broke ground on it um, in 1918. And it's considered the very first World War I memorial built in this country. And it listed the name of those young men who died 
um, in the war. From that particular area? Yeah, from Klickitat County. And um, there weren't that many, uh, you know, in the beginning, but um, it was, you know, this was the intention behind it. Now, why, you know, he picked Stonehenge because of this thing. Now, you know, modern archaeologists say, well, look, Stonehenge was built way before the Druids. We don't believe that the Druids actually practiced there, but that there's debate about that. They're modern-day Druids who consider Stonehenge sacred. Does Sam Hill Stonehenge have the same properties uh, of being able to mark the solstice according to the sun, etc.? Yeah, apparently um, it, it would have, except there's a hill that blocks the summer solstice from casting its shadow where it's supposed to. So um, it, it, it was built as, uh, you know, to be a replica of that, but it's kind of a broken clock, I think in terms of its functionality. He built it not out of stone. He built it out of concrete. He built it out of steel-reinforced concrete, a, a lot of concrete. Was concrete, this kind of building, something that was innovative back then? You had just mentioned that, that the, the mansion was built out of steel-reinforced concrete. Yeah, I think it was, it was innovative. It wasn't, it, it wasn't the way one would build a castle. It wasn't the way one would build a, a stone monument. Um, and so I think it was all part of this sort of, uh, you know, demonstration of uh, paving and concrete and, you know, what that, what that would do, um, you know, if adopted widely. And his intention was that this Stonehenge would last for a thousand years. I mean, he really... He really wanted something that was a permanent marker in the landscape. As I said, I haven't been there, but just looking at images of it, it has a very almost postmodern effect to it. It it looks like it could have, despite its obvious weathering, uh, not the the weathering that the original Stonehenge has by any means, but. Uh, despite that, it looks like it could have been designed uh, recently. Yeah, it has a very kind of geometric quality to it. It's not, yeah, rounded and weathered like the old Stonehenge. It reminds me of of sort of fake rock that you sometimes see in cemeteries. Um, and uh, so instead of real granite, you know, you you contour the rock to make it look rough hewn. Um, and so it's it's a kind of an oddball in that in that uh, in that way. And to me, the location is interesting. Um, whether it works as a, a sundial or not, it um, it's in it's in this sort of magnificent landscape. Um, the history of the Columbia River can be read standing at that Stonehenge. You can you can see the various some of the various lava flows. You can see how the river was shaped by the Missoula floods uh, during the post glacial period. Um, it's a, it's a very a very kind of inspiring and dramatic landscape. And I think he wanted a place that would be a place of kind of contemplation that you could you could you could walk among the 
the the faux rocks, <laughs> and then you could stand and look out at this kind of magnificent uh, Columbia River, and uh, yeah, and you would you would be inspired. You would you know meditate. Now, this was not the only, you know, big concrete monument he built. Um, the other one was he was the prime force behind the Peace Arch in Blaine. Again, another big concrete structure that's designed to be noticed. It's designed to carry the message of international cooperation, uh, you know, to, to tie together Britain and Canada, children of a common mother, it says. And when when was that built? It was built in the 1920s. Yeah, so it, 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 Sam Hill was, you know, the prime force behind that. I, you know, as as well known as the Peace Arch is, and the Peace Arch, you know, I mean that, that it's a significant monument to kind of international cooperation in an area that was one of the last areas of debate about where the border would be, right? It's in that far northwest uh, corner of the mainland. And, you know, I think it's, I, th I think it's a, a very inspiring and lasting thing. But I also think that Sam Hill's greatest contribution, whether you like it or not, was his promotion of roads, promotion of paved roads at a time when that was a pretty nascent idea. Um, you know, I mean, the, the first settlers in Washington, among the things, the first things they did when they created like the territorial legislature was to build roads, you know, so people could get from one place to another. But, you know, Hill came along and wanted the roads to be modernized. He was a big advocate of that even before the first car putt-putted on the streets of Seattle, Sam Hill was promoting uh, pavement and more roads and interconnected highway systems. So he envisioned the Northwest before mechanized travel actually got here. Yeah, I mean, well, the railroads were here, but in terms of mechanized automobiles. Automobiles. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And... Um, uh, you know, he played a big role in, in as I mentioned, in, in the Columbia Gorge Road in Oregon. Um, he helped, uh, you know, he was a prime mover of the Good Roads Association, which promoted roads, um, and, and the creation of the State Highway Department in Washington was kind of an outgrowth of what they, what they lobbied for. So it's interesting that, you know, he was a, a railroad guy who made that jump to a highway guy. Sounds like he owned a concrete company. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it does, doesn't it? I don't, I'm not sure if he did, but, uh, uh, but he, he certainly was a big believer in the future of the car. Something about Sam Hill, and I have not known this. I knew about the mansion on, on Capitol Hill. By the way, it's still there in all its glory. It's just right off of 10th East and Highland. Uh, it's been redone inside, but um, is a landmark. So it, it looks on the outside um, just like it did uh, when Sam Hill 
built it, and my understanding was that he built it to receive royalty, Belgian royalty, maybe personages like Queen Marie of, of Romania. Um, very unusual structure right, right down the road from uh, St. Mark's Cathedral. But this, maybe this springs from his Quakerism, but this yearning for peace and under, understanding brotherhood, sisterhood seems very apparent in, in his, these, these monuments and these structures that he built. Yeah, I think it, he certainly was modeling a kind of international cooperation and international uh, understanding uh, at a time when, of course, that was highly challenged. Um, but I think he, I think he, yeah, I think he did see um, the importance of finding common ground, of unity, and of uh, trying to move away from from uh, war, which, you know, particularly in Europe, had been in kind of a constant state of, of warfare for um, a number of centuries. And so trying to work with royalty and people of other countries to, you know, try and evolve a, a more peaceful interaction, I think, was a big part of what he was about. So when you're at Stonehenge on the Columbia... Is that what we call it, Stonehenge on the Columbia? It's just Stonehenge, yeah. I mean, there are tons of Stonehenge replicas all over the world, you know, Carhenge and Nebraska and, you know, other various sort of uh, versions of it. Uh, but anyway, yeah. But when you're at Stonehenge on the Columbia what, and looking out on that vista, what what did you think about and what would you encourage others to think about when they visit? I do think it's a place where you get a really fabulous view of that geography and geology. I think there's a way in which he was trying to transfer the feelings of an ancient connectedness of place to a a place that he felt connected to, but wasn't connected to. You know, people have been living along that river for millennia. I think that comes through when you look at that and explore that landscape. There's a feeling of this is a place that has sort of nourished people for thousands of years. And when a railroad man comes along and he sees the utility factor of having railroads and roads, but then also is moved by the sort of ancientness and connectedness, something like Stonehenge almost makes sense. It's like I can transfer, I can transplant some of those European roots to this place and there'll be some kind of harmonizing between them. So I think it's one of those things where it's just a great place to look at the landscape and think about the landscape. But it also is that classic kind of quirky, weird thing where it's like, yeah, what in Sam Hill is this doing here?
Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Seth Halloran, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossbacks Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its seventh season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through May. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode.